This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Kevin and his family immigrated to the U.S. from Guatemala when he was four years old. His family would join a local SBC church. The church launched a Spanish-speaking service, and Kevin's dad volunteered his time and talents to lead the service. Kevin grew up in this church, eventually leading worship for the Spanish service. Kevin and his family faithfully served the local community, despite blatant racism from some pastors and leaders. Kevin and his family would leave this church, and Kevin would accept a role as a youth pastor and worship leader at an American Baptist church in California. Despite the change, Kevin's time at this new church was horrific. He experienced gaslighting, racist comments, and verbal abuse from lead pastor. Kevin desired to be in ministry, but this church wasn't safe. So he knew for the sake of his own mental and emotional well-being, he had to leave. Kevin would spend time searching and praying for what's next. He would get a job. And in some ways, he maybe thought ministry was over. But there was a passion inside of him to find and create a place where all people were welcome and all people were safe. So now Kevin is launching a new adventure of a new church, open to everyone, hopeful that this church can serve the community well and love everyone who enters its doors. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. Kevin, so thankful to have you on the episode today, and we're just excited to learn about you and your story and also share what you're doing. Uh, so as we said in the introductions, Kevin is a pastor uh, of a church uh, that we're going to talk through what he's doing in the Free Methodist denomination, and I am excited to talk about that and his passion for ministry and what he's doing in Kansas. But before we get there, Kevin, your story is heartbreaking, but also just filled with so much wisdom and perseverance. I just want to turn it over to you. like. Talk to us about how did, where you grew up, and then walk us through your story as you went into kind of SBC to start, and then eventually ended up where you are today. Yeah, so first off, thank you both so much for having me on the episode. Um, 
it's as as much pain as like certain parts of my story still bring me i think there's so much importance in sharing these stories and telling people like hey you're not alone like i just got off the phone with somebody who was literally just asking me am i alone in feeling this way and i'm telling them no you're not like this is stuff that i feel and that i see and i get it so yeah just to to start off uh i was born in guatemala uh my parents are both guatemalan uh my whole ancestry goes back to to mayan times and even uh spanish conquistadors and spanish royalty even and when i was so we're talking to a royal is i'm what you're pro- saying. i'm like 210th <laughs> in line for the spanish yes. throne so the power dang <laughs> pretty cool i I, th- I feel like half the half of uh, latin america is also 210th in line for the spanish throne though so you know take that with take that with a grain of salt but we came to this united states we moved here when i was four years old we moved me and my parents my my mom's parents my grandparents moved to houston we immediately joined just a small church small hispanic church we were there for a couple years uh later moved to another hispanic church that was uh, closer to home and we weren't having to travel an hour each way to just to go to church when we were there uh, the pastor that that was there at the time kind of took both both of my parents under his wing and started discipling them up to be like Bible study leaders and then Sunday school leaders and then eventually youth, the youth pastors. My dad became a deacon and then an elder of the church. And eventually when the pastor that had been discipling him left, my dad was kind of voted into that lead pastor role. And he held that role for, I want to say, four or five years. The church grew and it was strong and everything. And there just came a point when, honestly, the whole family was burnt out. We were at church six, usually seven nights a week. We did everything with the church. It, while we were there, My, uh, I had two more sisters. And so then it was the five of us. And it was just hectic at church all the time. So there came a point when, like I said, we were all burnt out. We all wanted a break. We all just wanted to kind of stay, step away from ministry for a bit. So we started visiting some other churches and eventually came upon a Southern Baptist church. And at the time, it was it was a fairly good-sized church. It was thriving. There were a lot of ministries. I remember my first Sunday there. Um, obviously, I'm there with my family. I'm like 12 years old or something. I meet the youth pastor who is still a friend of mine. He still mentors and disciples me like to this day. But I remember meeting him and he told me, hey, you've got to come to Wednesday night youth group. And his energy was so like much that I told my parents, I'm coming to youth group on Wednesday night. And they're like, well, that's because we were still kind of at the other church. And they're like, well, that's when our prayer meetings are. And I was like, that's fine. You can drop me off here first, go to your prayer meeting and then come back. (laughs) And so they did that for like six months until finally we like actually made the decision to just switch churches. And it was in large part because this this youth pastor had like grabbed me and he had taken me under his wing. He had started discipling me and put me into like a small group and introduced me to everybody. And it was it was really great. That was the first time that I looked at ministry and I was like, oh, I want to be in church. Not just because my friends are there, because my family's there, but like because I want to be there regardless of anything else. And I've kind of carried, I've tried to carry that with me uh, the rest of my life. And I try to make ministry that way. We're like, hey, it doesn't matter who's there. 
let's make this a place you want to be at. So I get baptized at this church a week before I, th- I turn 13. A few months after that, the, the pastors of this church approach my parents and say, hey, we like it's, it's really a God thing that you came here because we'd been wanting to contact you for about a year before you started coming to this church because we hear about the things that you're doing at this other church. We've been wanting to start a Spanish ministry here, uh, and we want you to be the one to do it. And that's essentially what happened, right? My parents started a, a Bible study in some apartments. It moved to the church building uh, at some point, and it just started growing. And that was right after feeling like really burnt out, right? So you guys just like went, jumped yeah, right back like in. Yeah, it's like three kinda. months of kind of a sabbatical and then just jump right oh, back God. into ministry. Yeah. It, Is this a primarily a white church too? Yeah. And I was, I was going to mention that like that when we first got there, it was probably four or 500 people, nearly every single one of them white. Uh, there were a few people of color, but really not many, like maybe one Asian family, maybe one, one or two black families. And we were for sure the only Hispanic family. So then we start this ministry and all of a sudden it's not just more people of color who are in the building. It's people who don't even speak English because the people who are coming to this Mm -hmm. Bible study um, and eventually to, to the, to the worship service that came out of that, they are first generation immigrants, almost every single one of them. They all grew up either uh, very like Latin American Roman Catholic, which is different from, North American Roman Catholic, and we can get into that a little bit, but like they're not from any sort of evangelical background at all. They don't know the language, they don't know the customs. And so that starts to be kind of a sticking point between the church at large and this congregation that we're we're trying to foster and we're trying to grow through this whole time. It's one of those things that at the time I didn't notice it. I'm sure my parents did notice it. But I was, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16. I was paying more attention to like the success that I was having in the youth group where uh, I was not only part of the youth, uh, the youth worship team, but I was actually like leading worship. I was the youth worship director. I was leading mm-hmm. uh, summer small groups like out of our house. I was taking the sixth graders and helping introduce them to the youth group. I was I was preaching in front of the church uh, during during like youth led Sunday. So there were a lot of things that I didn't realize and I didn't catch on until much later. But something that like really sticks out in my mind is one of one of the pastors on staff, uh, his youngest kid came into the youth group and so i did like i did with everybody else and kind of you know try to take him under my wing and introduce him and everything and he kind of immediately started just saying very racist things i mean you know think think of a racial slur against hispanics and this kid was saying them and i mean this is Mm -hmm. an 11 year old sixth grader son of a pastor like you kind of expect better and it almost didn't seem malicious because he would say it jokingly and then go no 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 you know I'm you know I'm not being serious right he would he would kind of do that thing yeah and a few months passed by like this until finally one day I snapped and 
I said, dude, you can't say stuff like that. Like, I'm not going to let you say stuff like that. I'm not going to let you talk to me that way. I'm done with it. You're done. Whatever. How old were you? I must have been 15 or 16. Okay. The way I put it in my head was this kid just wants to feel like he's one of the crew. Yeah. And he like, because he was always sticking around me and my friends. And it was Mm. just like, he just wants to be one of the gang. Right. Yeah. And I just told him, this is not the way to do it. You can't do this. So what ended up happening was he went to his dad, who again was one of the pastors at this church, told him that I was bullying him and that I had snapped at him and and yelled at him in front of everybody, um, that I had made him cry in front of everybody. Like He honestly just made stuff up. And the youth pastor who like I said before, is still a friend of mine. Like he defended me. He stood up for me and said, no, that's not what's happening. I've talked to this kid. I've talked to you about your kid. Like this, Kevin was just reacting to what your kid was doing. And eventually what ended up happening was after a ton of back and forth, this pastor set a meeting with like my whole family And so he pulled my dad, who's another pastor on staff, he pulled my sisters into it, he pulled my mom into it, and we sat there for probably 30 minutes while he berated us, saying that we should know better, and that we should know our place, and this and that and the other. And and he said, you need to apologize to my son. And I told my parents, "I, I have no reason to apologize. And I remember my dad telling me, Kevin, I know you don't want to, but this is what needs to happen now. Mm-hmm. And so I apologized. They walked out. I'm sitting there like in tears. I'm not not because I'm sad or hurt, but because I'm so mad. Yeah. And my dad says to me, there's just some some things that we have to do as Hispanics that people are going to expect of us. And apologizing for defending yourself is one of those things and again that's the first time i remember it like even kind of making sense in my head that we were treated differently that pastor stayed on until for for another 10 or 12 years the youth pastor i had left the senior pastor at the time left new people came in um actually a couple of new like cycles of people came in and this executive pastor stayed there like I said, for the next 10 or so years, somewhere in between there, we start actually holding a a service in Spanish, a full worship service in Spanish, where I'm uh, leading worship, and obviously my dad's preaching, and we've got like Bible studies and everything happening. How old are you at this point? Uh, I was about 17. I was almost 18 when we started that worship so like, service. About three years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two, or, two okay. or three years later. Yeah. Okay. We actually start this worship service. Um, and a couple months into it, the way it's set up is the church has two buildings. And so the big, the, the big building that seats, you know, four or 500 people, that's where the English speaking service is. And we had kind of the smaller building that was the fellowship hall and kitchen and some classrooms and stuff. Um, and so the agreement was that we would go in there at a certain time when Sunday school is supposed to be over and we could start setting up, we could start rehearsing, like warming up for worship, right? In half an hour. And so every single Sunday 
I would be watching the time going, when can we start rehearsing? Like, I, I know that, you know, this might be annoying to some people that are still like in these rooms praying, but we've got 30 minutes. And if I wait for them to leave, we've got five minutes before service starts and we can't right. sound check. Right. Yeah. So I remember one, one Sunday. And again, I, if I wasn't 18, I was like almost 18. So mm -hmm. we're talking spring, summer. We've had a worship service for just a couple of months at this point. We start, the, the clock strikes the hour. And so we start just doing our sound check. And it's just like, hey, how does guitar sound? How do, how do mics sound? How does this sound? How does that sound? And out of one of these classrooms, the, again, it's a Southern Baptist church. And so they have just a deacon board. And the chair of the deacons comes out of one of these classrooms. He's leading a Sunday school. And he says to us that we need to stop with our, it was, it was something stupid. Like you need to stop with your, with your loud, unruly music. And I was like, okay, whatever. And he just closes the door. Like he's very upset, closes the door, come, uh, finishes praying or whatever it is that they're doing. And then when the class comes back out, he comes straight up to me and in front of this whole team who, again, they're all new believers, like within the last six months or so, they had accepted Christ. They're all first generation immigrants. Uh, and he says to me, you know, I really just wish that all of you would just go back to your country. Oh, my God. And I'm just like standing there stunned. Like, did he really just say this? And I turned to to my mom who's standing right there and I go, did he really just say this? And she goes, yeah, I'm going to go get your dad. And so she goes off to find yeah. my dad. He's already like out the door, out of the building, you know, going to his own worship service, you know, so 10, 15 minutes before worship starts, I go, I run off to find the head pastor and the executive yeah. pastor. And I'm like, I'm going to tell them like, that is not okay. I'm going to yeah. tell them this. And I go and I tell them this. And again, the executive pastor is the same one who just a couple years prior made me apologize to his son for his son bullying me. Right. Yeah. And I tell them not hey, just bullying you, but being racist towards like, you. Be, and he learns being that very somewhere. racist. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I tell him, hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know, like, you know, the rule is you're not supposed to bother a, a pastor on a Sunday morning, um, but you need to know that your deacon chair just said this to to me and and my yeah. people and like that's yeah. an issue both these pastors look at me and go well what what'd you do to upset him <gasps> oh I'm my like, gosh we, i'm so we sorry we didn't do anything we didn't we were just like we were holding our end of the agreement like we were doing what we're supposed to do and uh one of the two of them says well you know you must have done something because i know him and he's not the type of guy to just go off like that. So you really need to go back and like think about what you did. Mm, and I just walked gosh. away stunned going, I didn't do anything. Yeah. And that's the moment, I think, when I really started to look back um, at not just the previous few years, but it like shaped how I saw our interactions for the next for the next few years, because suddenly I realized that Anytime, like for example, the, the church kitchen was messy at all, the pastors would call my dad 
the the head pastor, the executive pastor would call my dad and say, hey, the Hispanics did something, they left it a mess. And I was like, no, we didn't, like, we didn't even use the, why are we cleaning this? We didn't use the kitchen at all. Like it was somebody else yeah. who came in. We had to beg for every single bit of, of like money that came through the budget to the point where we had to start, we had to like put together a team to count the tithes and offerings because the money that the church was saying yeah. actually belonged to us, we're like, hold on, no. Like we we definitely like brought in more than that this last week. And so we yeah. had to put together our own team of of just money counters essentially. Sounds terrible to say that, but that's what they were doing. Mm. They were literally just yeah. counting tithes and offerings. And recording that to say, okay, no, we brought in $2,000, for example. I don't know what the actual numbers were. Right. But we brought in $2,000 this week. And like that goes to our budget. That's money for us. And like we will choose what to do with that. And we had to fight for years for the financial chair or whatever the title was to not take money from us. Because we would say, hey, we need to buy this equipment. And they'd go, well, you don't have any money. And we're like, how do we not have money? We like we collect tithes and offerings every week. And so again, like, like suddenly I started to see that, wait a second, we are treated differently. We like people do look at us differently just because we're brown. Uh, yeah. just because, you know, people don't speak English without an accent. During this time, like I said, I'm still involved in ministry. Eventually, I'm going to college. Uh, I'm going to college in the city. And so it's very easy for me to like go up to school during the week and then come back on the weekends, you know, whatever. Sometime in that, I, I begin to see that this is a lot more than just like how they treat us internally. And so I start working with the youth group of the church and like the church is kind of in between youth pastors. And this is like the main church's youth group. Yeah. Yeah. The main okay. church's youth group. Is that how you would say that the mother church? That's how we've referred to it for the last 15 years. <laughs> uh, the question I have Kevin is, did your dad ever talk to the deacon of deacons or the chair deacon chair? Did he ever have a conversation with him about what he said? It came a point when, and it wasn't it wasn't just him. It was a lot of different people. It was, I mean, the pastors themselves. And there just came a point, I remember I got, like, angry at my dad, which, yeah, okay, I was, you know, a teenager. I was under 20. Like, I got angry at my dad every other day. I remember him and I having, like, a very, very big argument, like, on a Wednesday night or something at church because I saw something happen and my dad just kind of like nodded his head and just walked away. He didn't say anything. He didn't fight back or anything. And I went to him and I said, why, like, why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you defend us? Like, this is your job is to defend us. And he said, Kevin, it doesn't matter what I say or what I do. They just find something new to blame us for. And mm -hmm. they find something new to, to say, you shouldn't be in this church anymore. They find some new reason for us to, want to leave he said mm -hmm. so i don't waste my energy i don't waste my time defending anybody anymore because i know that god is my god is our defender 
and God's going to deal with them, and I I can't deal with them anymore. Kevin, so what you said about your dad, you know, again, this is just me speaking, and and I mean, if this is a fair assessment, let me know if this is a fair assessment. It sounds like for your dad that he felt like he had a place where he could serve the community, his community. That was worth more than him trying to fight these men for basically their racism, right? I mean, they were being racist, and he felt like, I can't fight this, but I have a community, and that's what I'm going to focus on. I have a community. I I can serve my community in this building still, and I'm going to focus on that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Can I just be honest? Like, that is a like, and and I'm I'm John and I both John and I are white. If if people don't know on the podcast, if you couldn't tell, but I mean, Kevin, like, I would speak from a white perspective to say a white person would never do that. They would they would they would want their voice to be heard and respected and expect everyone to follow suit before before thinking I'm dealing with a lot of stuff over here that is not right that is not just but I'm going to serve my community. I mean I just want us all to sit with that that's profound and so Christ like to do that but also so hurtful that that is happening inside a church. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, the interview we did with Kyle J where he said that oftentimes minorities, like if they are allowed in these spaces are used for others ambitions. So it's like, Hey, you're allowed to be here as long as you're serving my ambitions. And if I'm like sitting here as I'm listening to you, and thinking, why did they even ask you guys to be a part? Like, why did they even have a passion or a desire to build a Spanish-speaking ministry? Like, this doesn't. And I mean, like, I mean, I guess this is conjecture, but you guys were bringing in tithes. Is that the whole reason, or is it just like the like PR of it? Like, why? No, I still know the the man who was leading the church, the the lead pastor when we first got there. He's very progressive. He's still he's a different kind of Baptist, but he's still Baptist, but he's very progressive. His whole family is very, very progressive. Like I said, I still have uh, a relationship with the youth pastor there who was there at the time. He's more conservative, but still very, I want to say like theologically liberal, where he's like, everybody should know Christ. Like, doesn't matter who, like we need to preach to everybody. And I really do think that when we first got there, it was very much a a matter of, hey, this is a community that's in need in our town, in our part of Houston, and we want to reach them, and we feel like we're at a place to reach them. It just didn't stay that over the years. It changed into something, like you said, I, it's it's nice to send to the to the BGCT and the SBC that, hey, we've got four hundred people on Sunday morning. And we're going to just kind of gloss over the fact that uh, 50 of those are are kids from our Hispanic congregation and 100 are from the Hispanic congregation itself. You know, the other 250 are from this 60-year-old Southern Baptist church that just three years ago, four years ago, was at 500 by itself. 
Right. And so I like I said, I think it it started off a lot differently than what it was. And it just ended up as this, as just like, hey, you're here to for us. You're here to pay us service and you need to be thankful for that. Jay, to your point earlier, my dad just got to a point where he said, it's more valuable to be able to serve my community. It's more valuable to be able to to preach Christ to the people that are around me than it is to try to change this whole institution. It's it's better to just fight what I can and stick up for my people. But uh, I mean, I remember having conversations where uh, we would we would get together. We'd do like uh, beach trips on Mother's Day and and whatever. And like newcomers to the church would say, "Why don't you guys do this? Like, why don't you say this? And why don't you try that?" And my dad would say, "Well, you're welcome to try that, but we already have. There's no need to. There's better ways to spend your time and energy." And he would very gently like try to get people to not focus on the racism and instead focus on we're doing so much good here. There's so much better things that are happening here that we really can like make a change and and be a force for our community. Even if we have to put up with the racism and and the sexism and the ableism from these other people. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. It's heartbreaking and so counter what so many experiences that we have heard is because we've only heard the white perspective. So like even for our listeners, um, in particular, our white listeners, like you've heard stories of like in particular women struggling with some similar things. But even in that space, there is a privilege that comes with them being white like I can't even fathom what it's like for a brown woman to be in this space like oh it's heartbreaking yeah and that kind of was just reality for years as much as I I did love the church itself there really did come a point when I loved the idea of that particular institution a lot more than I loved anything that the main church was doing I still think that there's a lot of good things that the Spanish congregation was doing. I think that there's a lot of of good things. I mean, we saw hundreds and hundreds of people like come to trust Jesus over the the decade or so that we did ministry there. We would do out of country mission trips and see hundreds more people come to trust Jesus. Like I know we did a lot of good things there, but there was always this cloud of is the church going to say something because we sang this song in Spanish the one service a year that they asked us to do a joint service together and they wanted us to lead a song in Spanish, but like, were we too much for them? Did we go too far in singing Days of Elijah, for example, in Spanish? Yeah. And the answer every single year was, yeah, there were always people who complained about, well, there was too much Spanish in the service. And it's like, we had a singular prayer and one song and like, that's it. What do you mean there was too much Spanish in the service? But that was, like I said, just reality. That was just what we we dealt with. And we learned to just go with it and ignore it as best as we could. Yeah. Gosh, that's heartbreaking. Something else that struck me as you were just talking about 
your guys's time there was how like familial and communal it sounded with you being a teenager and like coming in like working with the sixth graders and like the fact that you guys you're just so involved in all these different facets of ministry I think part of that's because you're a PK right like you're a pastor's kid so that's just like totally <laughs> part of the exciting things about being a pastor's kid but also it just sounded really communal and beautiful so it does sound like you guys had something really special as much as there was like and that's I think yeah. that's what makes it even more heartbreaking mm -hmm. is like there was something so beautiful and instead of coming alongside and fostering it and helping you thrive it was like you're just like having to fight tooth and nail and like survive to keep something beautiful yeah yeah and i mean definitely definitely familial i mean the only family up until very very recently the only family that i've had here in the states like i said are, are my parents and my sisters who were both born here um and my grandparents who came with us and otherwise the entire rest of our families have been with the except ex exception of like one aunt and uncle the entire rest of our families have been back in guatemala and the one aunt and uncle live out in California, also in Orange County, actually. A lot of those people, especially from the early days, who are now at a different church with my parents, I still call them aunt and uncle because we did everything together. Yeah. They would come over multiple times a week, like to the house for dinner. They would um, be there for birthday parties and, and we'd go on vacation together and we'd go camping together. And, like we would do stuff together. We would really live life together. But you're right, we had to fight tooth and nail to just be able to keep this core group going. And despite the fights, despite everything that had to happen, like I said, we still saw hundreds and hundreds of people come to know Jesus. And, and we were able yeah. to share the gospel with, with thousands more people. There came a point when my dad was being invited to, to conferences, like Hispanic conferences, to speak on doing suburban ministry which to me is so funny because like there's plenty of <laughs> conference like opposite yeah yeah there, I've, I've been to so many conferences that are like how do you do inner city ministry and here are yeah. these hispanic conferences that are like no we need to do like outer city ministry we, you know we need to yeah like there's people still living in the suburbs and we need to reach them too and it's very different mm -hmm. than inner city ministry and yeah i mean we were the the worship team that we put together was being invited to lead worship at conferences and and i'm not just talking like you know a church that's celebrating their 20-year anniversary like the hispanic bgct invited us to lead worship at one of their sessions can you explain to our listenership what the bgct is yeah sorry that is the baptist general convention of texas and is i want to say basically ecumenically baptist where as long as you're a Baptist church, you can join the this conference. Uh -huh. And it kind of works as a denomination, but just within state borders. So is it under the SBC umbrella or is it its own thing and they're just kind of like buddies? It is it is technically under the SBC umbrella, but okay. they do, like I said, they invite every Baptist church to be part of it. So there's okay. a, there's a Baptist General Convention of California and of Arizona and of Oklahoma and like all 50 states. It's all technically under the SBC. It's okay. all also like open to any Baptist denomination or 
even just churches that will sign off on the Baptist faith and creed or whatever whatever it's called. Okay. Is this when you were 20? This is like when I'm 20. <laughs> 20, okay. So you're going to college, yeah. leading worship. Okay. Yeah, leading worship. And somewhere in there, we realized kind of part of this whole racism thing, we realized that the Hispanic, the like youngest Hispanic teenagers that we have, which like my sister's seven year, my first sister's seven years younger than me. And like, she's just going into the the main church youth group. And suddenly we realized that her and the other Hispanic teens now are being kind of pushed aside and passed up for leadership opportunities. They're being passed up and like just being invited to other kids' birthday parties. And then suddenly it's like lock-ins also. And then it's every year after we would do VBS in the summer, like every other good Baptist church, and the youth group always went out uh, to do stuff afterwards. And suddenly, like our kids were very specifically not being invited to it. And when we confronted, again, the pastors about it, the answer we got back was, oh, well, they don't know English. And so we can't really include them in anything. And we're like, no, hold on. They were all born in the, in America. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they, the, they don't know what? Spanish. <laughs> yeah. They, th- that's why they're there. That's why they go like on Sunday morning to the English service because they don't understand Spanish. Like, what are you talking about? And so what we did was the Spanish, like, it wasn't really a deacon board. It was more like an elder board. They, they put together a team of people to start up Hispanic youth ministry is what it was. And I was on that team and pretty quickly it went from, I think seven adults in total to like just me. And so we were running youth group on, I say we, I was running youth group on Friday night for first it was three teenagers and then it was five. And then eventually it was 25 or 30 teenagers Wow. where the main church had like four or five teenagers in their regular thing and their regular youth group. Yeah. And again, it was just one of those things where we said, you know what, they're going to be the way that they are. So, but we still have a duty. We still have a responsibility to these kids and to these families. And so we're going to, we're going to do what Christ commands us to do, plain and simple. Eventually, these two groups, uh, a new, a third senior pastor comes in. And kind of the first thing we tell him is, is, hey, here's what's happened in the past. Here's, you know, here's where we're coming from, blah, blah, blah. And he was a young guy, just a few years older, just about 10 years older than me, I believe. He immediately came in and said, well, you know, obviously the Hispanic ministry is doing great things in the church and we need to elevate the Hispanic, like we need to support you guys. And so for the first time in a decade, we actually feel supported. We we suddenly don't have to like scrounge by on, you know, somebody's letting us borrow their computer monitor and, and this person's bringing their laptop whose screen doesn't work. Like suddenly we actually <laughs> have equipment that works. Yeah. Um, the youth groups combine and I'm, I'm kind of put in charge of that as, as they never called me the, the pastor, but I was the youth pastor. I was always like the mm-hmm. youth director intern or something i can't even remember the title that i held for three years right suddenly we did feel finally supported this is about when i was 23 24 
and suddenly this new lead pastor, who again is a young guy, he grew up SBC, he went to SBC seminaries, he was getting his doctorate from another SBC seminary. I think suddenly he started to see how much influence the Hispanic congregation really had in the church. This is the part that's so fascinating to me, is like, even in their racism, the people of the church would still look at the Hispanic congregation and say, what should we do? Like, should we put on this trunk or treat that you guys started six years ago? Should we do that this year? Should we do the the Easter egg hunt that reaches 800 people on a single Saturday morning that you guys did by yourselves for years? So this senior pastor started to kind of start to push out the Hispanic congregation again. And he did that just by really subversive ways publicly from the pulpit. He would say, I don't know what Kevin's dad is doing over there. Like sometimes I look at it and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess it makes sense to him because he's Hispanic. And I'd be sitting there like, that's not, that's not right. (laughs) Weird, like subtle digs. Yeah. Like, to, and again, Ugh. at first it was just to my dad, and then it was also to me. By that point, I was married. My wife was, she was the interim, like, kids pastor for the church, or kids director, sorry. I was like, pastor, dang, not in the SBC. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kevin, how big was the white portion of the church? At this point, I want to say that the white portion was maybe 120 people. And the Hispanic side with kids, with teenagers, we're talking almost 200 people. So do you think there could be any jealousy there, too, with absolutely the white pastors and the white deacons seeing that you're growing and people are coming, people are coming to the faith? And, you know, we know the SBC, like Acts 29, it's all about the numbers. And so do you think they could see that and there's jealousy there? Right. And instead of embracing yeah. you, they think, you know, they have to center themselves always. Right. They're going to center right. themselves. And so that you're the problem now, whatever right. you're doing. I mean, is that a fair assessment or am I? That's my. I mean, no, that's just, that's definitely a fair assessment. Okay. Yeah. We were asking for permission to use the main sanctuary on like a Sunday night or Saturday night, like some other time other than Sunday morning because we had so many people. What what this pastor did was he said, well, I'll tell you what, you can use the main sanctuary at one o'clock on Sundays and that's it. And we're like, that's a terrible time. Like we're going to lose half of our people overnight because this is like, like church for Hispanics is so different than church for non-Hispanics. And he said, no, well, if you want to use the main sanctuary, that's what you're going to do. And that's what we did. And we went from, yeah, two, 200 people between you know, of, from birth up through, you know, 90-something years old, went to like 120 overnight, and then we just start losing people until we kind of stabled out at about 50 or 60. And that was the point when this, again, new senior pastor really came out and said, well, I don't know, you know, if we've got so few people in the Hispanic church, I don't know that we need to be paying um, a Hispanic pastor. To which the response from everybody was, you're not paying Kevin's dad. And I'm purposefully not using his name for the record because <laughs> this is his story to tell. I want him to 
the day that he finally wants to tell his own story. Yeah. But people, you know, people said, well, we're not, we're not paying Kevin's dad. Like he's doing all, he has a full-time job because we're not paying him and he's doing all this for free or almost for free. He might've been taking yeah. a small salary. This whole time he's been doing this for free. Yeah. He's, what? he's bivocational. He wasn't like paid he wasn't staff? Paid. Yep. He might have been getting, and I can't remember exactly, but if he was getting anything, it was like 12000 a year. Oh my gosh. Hold on. Wait a second. So this whole time when you're like, my dad is a pastor as well, he was a lay pastor. Mm-hmm. He was considered a lay pastor. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Just had a little mini freak out internally. Yeah, he was never he was never really like I said paid for that. I can't even remember 4 5 6 years however long it was that I was doing everything that I was doing. I was also a lay a lay leader. And so I tell people I've been in ministry 13 years, but every single church I've gone to says, "Oh, you interned for your dad's church." And I'm like, mm, "No." Like it was a lot more than just an internship and it wasn't my dad's church. Like my dad purposefully took himself out of the decision-making process when it came to, hey, who should be, who should we ask to lead our worship? Who should we ask to pastor our teenagers? Like he very purposefully took himself out of that. But because I didn't get any sort of, of pay for that, because my dad didn't get any sort of pay for that, people look at those years as just like, oh, you did, you did some volunteering and that's it. And that's essentially how this pastor like framed everything was, well, Freddie's just a volunteer. And so we need to like, we, you're right, we're not paying him. And so we need to like give him a sabbatical. And he was like, I don't, I don't want to take a sabbatical. And that's when this, this pastor and a few of the deacons started making up, like really honestly, just made up stories about my dad, made up stories about me, said some very nasty, very hurtful things uh, about my family, about the rest of the Hispanic congregation. And it got to the point when, where like we left the church and they were still saying stuff about us. It got to the point where I reached back out to that lead pastor and I said, hey, look, this is what's going on in your church. Like, I have proof that you're making up stories about us, that your deacons are making up stories about us, that other pastors are making up stories about us, and that you know their lies. That falls under legal territory, and I will sue you for everything you're worth if you don't stop. And it wasn't until— Did they stop? Yeah, it was, but it wasn't until that cease and desist letter that they finally stopped. Wow. And I think— a year or two after even that, the church that my parents ended up at was a much bigger church that actually had been planted by the church they were coming from years and years prior. The lead pastor of that church also reached out to where we had just come from and told them, hey, I hear that you're talking about the Coronados again. You need to stop. They've already sent you a cease and desist. You need to stop. This is our cease and desist. They have the backing of our church now and you need yeah. to stop talking poorly about them not just for them but also for you and they were they basically essentially used those stories to get your family to leave yeah to get us to leave most of the hispanic congregation that was left also uh left the church for either because they were following 
my family out and were like, no, this is wrong. What's going on to you? What's, what's happening to you? And so they followed us out. And there were also just a lot more people who suddenly didn't have my dad as that buffer between them and the racism and started yeah. to see it for themselves. And in the years since have come back to my parents and said, hey, I'm sorry for the way like I treated you because I there was a lot that I didn't see happening that after you left, mm -hmm. I I had to experience. I'm sorry for that. And thank you for defending us and loving us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But again, it's been, I mean, we're, we're in what, 2020? It's been six years. 2022. Yeah, 2022. And it's been six years and there's still people that are reaching out to to my parents from those times going, hey, I'm sorry I didn't stick up for you. I'm sorry that I pushed you in the wrong ways. I'm sorry that like, I didn't want to see the racism that was happening around me to me that you were defending me from. Like, it's been this very long, like, healing process for kind of us as a family, really. But hopefully also the people, like I said, there were a bunch of people who followed my parents out. And we hope it's been a healing process for them also, you know, given all this time now. Wow. That's a lot. So when you leave this, or when your family leaves this church, how old are you? Uh, 24. And are you st are yeah. you out of school? Yeah, so by this point, I'm out of school. I'm married. I was, uh, I decided to become essentially bivocational also. I was a financial advisor. And so kind of like, you know, good and bad thing where me and my wife and our, our first kid didn't, we didn't rely on the church for financial protection, so to speak. We didn't rely on the church for uh, health insurance or anything. Mm. So, like, we were fine physically, financially, but there was so much healing that had to happen just, like, immediately <laughs> for us to, to even be able to, like, walk back into a church and feel welcomed and at home, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that hearing your story that that in itself, what you, your family went through would, for a lot of people, would make them never want to go back to church and maybe even question their faith. Like, hey, is this, is this even worth it? So my question to you, facing all of that, how are you doing spiritually? Where was your faith at? At the time, I knew that, and I still know this, right? Like, I don't, want to say this and make it sound like I don't believe this anymore. But at the time, I knew that that was people. I knew that people can do terrible things and, and people say bad things and are sinful and, and can even be evil. But that itself was not a reflection of Jesus. And I had known that for years. I remember being like 13, 14 years old and grabbing my dad before church one day and telling him, hey, I'm not a I'm not a Christian anymore. And I was like very rebellious. And I was like, I'm not a Christian anymore. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I mean, you know, if looks could kill sort of thing. And I told him, well, if if Christians are racist and if Christians are sexist and if Christians are homophobic, then I don't want to be a Christian. I just want to follow Jesus. And he kind of looked at me like, and he said, that's a lot better than I thought what you were going to say. We're going to talk after church. <laughs> And after church, him and I went out for, for lunch and just had this discussion where uh, essentially that, you know, I told him, like, people are bad and I don't want to be associated with people who make Jesus look bad. 
because I'm trying to follow Jesus, not the rules that these people put in place to look like, quote, quote, Jesus. And so that's always kind of been my mentality. That's always been where I come from, my standard operating procedure, whatever you want to call it, where I don't, I know that's just people. I know yeah. that's not a reflection of a reflection of of Christ. I know that's not a reflection of God's love, but I had to repeat my I had to repeat that to myself every single day for probably 6 months before I really started to believe that and internalize that. Um we were going to another to a non-denominational like church plant at the time and like having conversations with those pastors who a lot of them are still we're still very good friends with and having conversations with them saying like, this is where we come from and this is what happened to us. And them like just affirming us saying that was evil. Like what was done to you was bad and sinful and shouldn't have happened. But it took a long time to actually finally put it into practice where I knew that's where I was like, that, that's where my head knowledge was. And it took a while before I really truly started believing that, um, Jesus is so much greater than anything these people could say or do or or whatever to us. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was just going to say I would want to sit with that for everyone who's listening because, you know, Kevin, just hearing your story, I mean, being not only discriminated and discarded because of the color of your skin, your ethnicity— you know, but your community too, your entire worth of your community being like you, you're not worth anything that we have is kind of the message that I'm getting that your church leadership presented to you. You you and your people and your family are not worth anything. We're not going to share our space. We're not going to share our time. In fact, you're a problem. Then they go preach their sermons on Sunday that are filled with stories that are opposite of that, right? the reality for you to stand here and say what you did about your faith, I think we all need to sit with that too, because that is a unique experience toward not only oppression and discrimination, but it speaks to how rich and true your faith really is, about where you center yourself and where your story centers. And that I also think for us as white people, like to be frank, like we don't have that story at all. And so we can sit here and be and and say what we want to say in our heads or have opinions. We don't have that story. We are given privilege when we walk in the door. I think it's important for us just to sit where he is coming from from a position of faith and what his faith means because I'm impressed by it and not saying in the sense of like there's some sort of ladder of Christianity. It's more about just understanding that when you're in that place where you are being persecuted because of just being there, that that is a real rich and deep faith that develops out of that, that is, in my opinion, this is my opinion, more in line with what Jesus was about and who he was and how he walked and lived on this earth. I appreciate that. I mean, but I'm trying, I'm, also try not to get emotional here so sorry <laughs> um not because emotions aren't bad for anybody who's listening just because i don't i'm, I'm an ugly crier that's it um <laughs> and we can see your face <laughs> and uh, yeah um don't worry i have ugly cried many a time <laughs> in this setting. um 
but like it's it's a heck of a thing to really start to like put that into action because there's still things that I look back on and I things that that pastors who I grew up with who I respected who mentored me through like college and my early days in ministry who in like 2020 with the George Floyd protests would tell me like really truly hateful things like well Kevin you know you're you really shouldn't be a pastor because you're Hispanic you don't understand what it is to be uh, a true citizen of America and I'm like excuse you <laughs> like what I remember one pastor who has who has since passed away uh, of COVID actually it was like Columbus Day 2020 or something and I shared some like some meme on Facebook about how like we shouldn't celebrate Columbus Day we should celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day and this pastor uh, just sent me a private message saying that I should be thankful for Columbus because if it wasn't for him then I would still be sitting in the Central American jungle just naked drinking hot chocolate to which I want to say like first off that actually sounds really really good secondly <laughs> like his his whole <laughs> Um, which I that's horrific it's horrific on the but one hand also, I also took a screenshot and sent it to to my parents and I was like this actually sounds pretty good to me and like my entire family was like yeah no that's like we should all just be just hanging out drinking hot chocolate that'd be great that'd be fantastic but like these are again like just hearing this sort of rhetoric or being told that for example no racism isn't real or systemic racism isn't real like i i wrote up a, a whole blog post on my website right i think in the middle of 2020 where i just recounted basically every single age from the time i was like four years old every single year just one experience that i could remember that stuck out to me of racism i think that was that was my most viewed blog post in uh in 2020 but i did that because there were so many people that said no racism isn't real you're just making it up and they would twist what what i just said about about people and jesus right they would they would say well no that's not racism that's just one being one person being evil that's one person being sinful i'm like yeah and that particular sin is called racism and when there are systems in place to, and I know this is a whole different soapbox, and I'm sorry about that, but I'd be like, when there's systems in place to support that, that's called systemic racism. Like it's not, it's not a condemnation on anybody necessarily. It's just like it's a reality of life. And having to remind myself again, when you know, when the rubber really meets the road, having to remind myself like, this isn't Jesus. Like what this person is saying here yeah. is not. The heart of god what this person is like the way that they're trying to hurt me is not what god wants and having to remind myself that you know at the same time uh if i want to emulate christ then i can't just lash back out at them right and like that for me is the hardest thing to do because yeah i do just want to tell you that you're a bad person <laughs> right for starters right. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm I'm going to I'm going to pray for you, 
And I'm going to hope that that you do well in your ministry because that's all that's in my power to do. Yeah. And putting that into practice is like, that's one of those things that I struggle with to this day because it's so hard to do. And it's so oppressive might be the right word for it, but it's it, like it, it weighs you down and it, it it knocks the breath out of you when it's somebody that you love or you admire who's sitting here saying, you know, the only reason you think that that racism is real is because you're woke now. And I'm like, that like one thing has nothing to do with the other. And it, it knocks the breath out of you. And it, it the only way that I can continue on, and this is going to sound really self-righteous and I'm sorry for that, but the only way that that I can just continue on in ministry is saying, no, people need to know the love of Jesus, and and if nobody else will tell them, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to show the love of Jesus however it is that I can to whoever it is that I can. And and for some people, it's going to look a lot different than for others. I've just got to remind myself that, you know, Jesus, God is love, and Jesus wants us to love each other, and that's it. That's all I can control. Yeah, and he doesn't see you or people that your church, your former church was saying were a problem or not worth their time or resources or relationship. Jesus is the complete opposite of that. And so what you're doing is actually living out a life that looks like Jesus's life. You're saying, hey, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not going to value you differently um, because I care about you because you're an image bearer. And that's unfortunately not what was modeled to you. And I, I, as I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking about how much of a trip that is to be raised up in the faith and have these people that are supposed to be spiritual authorities in your life assigning value to you that is not congruent with what the value that Jesus and God gave you. And it's heartbreaking to me and also just such a testament to really your family and you that they were able to model Jesus to you and to help walk you through how horrifically disorienting that is. Yeah. It sounds, I said at the beginning, it sounds really, you know, almost trite and and very evangelical. I grew up hearing it, but like the only reason why, like my parents are still in ministry. They're, they're currently leading a small Spanish congregation at another Baptist church. Um, Look at them go. I, yeah, and and every day I'm like, <laughs> stop being Baptist, be free Methodist, uh, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> like the only reason why, like for example, my my spouse, my wife, is still so supportive of me is because of how much she loves God, and the only reason my my parents are still in ministry is because of how much they love God. And the only reason why my sisters uh, still like support them and do everything with them is because of how much they love God. And it's it's why I'm still in ministry. It's why I don't want to leave ministry. It's because of how much I love God and how much I want people to to see that God loves them. Like ultimately, it's about yeah. how much God loves us, not how much I can love God or how how many rules I can follow. It's about Hey, God loves you and wants relationship with you. And that's why I'm in ministry. That's why I, I 
push forward and I remind myself every single day, this is just people, it's not God. This is just people, it's not Jesus. This is just mm. evil and sinful and not of Christ. And just move forward. So you you leave the church or you guys, your family leaves the church. You end up taking another role. Well, actually, you end up getting hired late 20s, mid 20s. And at yeah. another, it's a Baptist church, not a, it's mm-hmm. not a uh, SBC, it's an American Baptist church that's in California. Mm-hmm. What happened there? How, how long is this supposed to go? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, so got hired at, at this, um, it's, Ameri- it's an American Baptist church. It's a small town of 88, 8,600 people maybe. And the way that the lead pastor there got us to move out there was basically saying, hey, this is a missional community, um, like high rates of poverty, high rates of drug use, and this is the biggest church in town. And it was, it was like 250, 300 people, like very big church in a very small size community. And he said, uh, he said, you know, like our goal is to reach those people for, for Jesus. My wife and I, like we felt drawn to the mission way more than we were drawn to like the actual guy himself like the guy himself we were like yeah i mean you know he's fine he's another like white guy pastor with his mdiv like whatever but we felt drawn to that community because of everything that he sold us on basically what ended up happening was i was hired on to be the the worship pastor um and immediately like day one he uh the lead pastor changes my role so I'm not the worship pastor, I'm the media pastor, which means I'm not up front. I'm actually like, you know, taking care of all the technology. And then the youth pastor leaves um, for his own issues with the lead pastor. And I become the youth pastor. And then it's, um, hey, can, you know, we also have a bunch of college students who are kind of in our, kind of in our orbit. Can you start a college ministry? And then it's, can you also lead worship you know once a month and like expectations start piling up and it got to the point when i wasn't being asked to take on anything else i was being told why aren't you taking on more and that's a very hard conversation to have like uh well i'm i'm currently working 60 hours a week and you you don't pay me that much and i've got a family and I've got another kid on the way. And so by this point, we've got two kids when we move out to California. It just turns into a very toxic situation very quickly where uh, maybe once a month, the, the, the lead pastor would ask me, are you sure you want to be in ministry? Uh, I remember once he said, um, if you're not willing to literally sacrifice your family at the altar of Christ, then you don't deserve to be in ministry. And I was like, Nope, that's not that's not Christ like. That's not even yeah. biblical. Oh my word. Did when you got first got hired there, so your family, it's a mostly white congregation. Did they give reasoning for like was that a part of the hire? I guess I'm asking if you want to elaborate <laughs> on that at all. When we were interviewing, I was told that there was a, a large Hispanic population in town that we needed to reach and this and that and the other. And, you know, in a couple years, once you've got kind of got your feet under you and some systems in place, you can become like the Spanish pastor and blah, blah, blah. And then within about a month of, I can't remember if it was my first 
like official staff meeting or like really quickly after. But like in front of the whole staff, the lead pastor says to me, well, you know, I mean, everybody knows why we brought Kevin on and everybody kind of like looks around and we're like, because we needed a worship and media pastor. <laughs> and like, that was kind of my answer. I'm yeah. like, because you interviewed three other people and thought I was the best one. And yeah. he was like, no, well, it, be it came down between you and a black guy. And I really would have preferred him. But like, we realized that he was out of our price range. And really, you would really like spice up the team. And I'm just sitting there. Like I said, it's my oh, first my or second staff meeting at this new church. And I'm sitting there thinking, what did I just do? Yeah. Like, what did I bring my family to all of a sudden? And oh, everybody at the table is looking at him like mouths wide open like how can you say that to this guy that we just moved across the country like we pulled him away from his family and they're not even any closer to his wife's family because because my wife is from san diego and we were eight ten hours away from them uh up in yeah. northern california and everybody's looking at him like what did what just happened did anybody say anything yeah. any of the staff nope yeah. Nope. Not not immediately. Um, I know. Yeah. I believe it was the children's pastor afterwards said like, "Hey, I feel like that was kind of inappropriate." And to my understanding, he just kind of brushed it off. But after that, each person on staff came into my office. Like after that meeting, they each the rest of the day kind of came into my office and closed the door and were like, "Hey, um, I'm really sorry for what he said back there. Are you okay?" So like everybody was like, hey, this didn't that didn't just <laughs> joke to himself did not land correctly because everybody immediately was like inappropriate, unacceptable. Right. Um, this is kind of one of those things where as a person of color, you learn to hide your feelings. And so to every and looking back on it, like, yeah, I should have I should have said something in the moment. I should have said something to each one of those people. But in the moment, I just kind of smiled at every single one of them. And I'm like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm fine. It's fine. Things are fine. <laughs> you were you were brand new, though. Yeah. You had just moved your whole family there. Like, what are you? You don't even know these people. Right. Like, what are you supposed to say to them? Right. Like, it, there was nothing to say. Right. Like, you clearly know this was inappropriate. And I know it was inappropriate. And there's nothing any of us can do. Right. There's apparently nothing anybody could do. Um I stayed at this church for another two years. And like I said, it was toxic and abusive from from the start, obviously. Yeah. Um, there came a point when this pastor would call me at like midnight on Saturday night just to tell me that there was a comma missing from like worship lyrics. And he wanted me to oh my leave my house at 12, 12 in the morning, one in the morning to go fix it at that moment. And he would get mad when I told him, no, I'm in like, I'm in bed. You're waking me up. Why, why are you still, you've got to preach in 10 hours. Why are you awake? Yeah. There, there came a point when I think over the two years I was there, he had one heart attack and a couple of other like heart problems. And by the end of my time there, he was blaming all of his health issues on me. He what? was saying that, you know, he he was going to die of a heart attack because I wasn't performing well. 
because I wasn't doing all my duties, because I wasn't um, living up to my job description. To the day I left, he remained convinced that I had lied to him about my credentials and what I had done before and like my where my expertise lay in and everything simply because it wasn't to his perfectionist standard. And I'm not the and I know it sounds like I'm I'm sitting here whining. I'm not the only one who will say that. There are people who are currently on staff at that church who I've spoken to since he left that church who say the same thing. Um, there are people who have left that church. There are people who have left the faith completely because of the things that like this guy would say to people before service or after service or even like from the pulpit. And and he would just kind of take as he he would say, Well, I'm the lead pastor, I'm the one who God speaks to here. And it's like, no, that's it's not exactly true to the extent like that like the way you're saying it is not the way that it is like yes god speaks to you god also speaks to the rest of us <laughs> you're not the sole voice of god how, how old was this guy let's see 50 i think at the time 52 maybe 50s. the best part about his whole personality was that uh he went to seminary when he was in his 30s because he was having a crisis of faith and wanted to really decide for himself if God was real or not. So he went and got his MDiv. As soon as he finished his MDiv, he planted a church, uh, which to my knowledge is still around, even if it's under a different name now. And after he was at that church plant for a few years, he went up to this church in California, and that was uh, the year before I started there. Mm. And to my knowledge, he's no longer in ministry. I don't know what he's doing now. All I know is that anybody who used to have contact with him no longer has contact with him, and everybody is fairly certain that he's no longer in ministry. I know people like to hate on the Enneagram, but I'm just curious if you know your Enneagram number. I am a three-wing four. Yeah, I thought I remembered you being yeah. the same same number as my husband. So I have like a something I just notice about you and appreciate about you as a human. It seems that you were created with some fire in you and with like a bent towards justice. And I, I believe that, that God has a bent towards justice. He is the most just, right? right. So even back when like th uh, there's this through line of your story where you're seeing, but like, that's not just, that's not right. And you're having these moments where you're where you're having this crisis within yourself of like, hold on, there's there's what's just and right. And then there's what's wrong and oppressive and awful. And I just want to say I really appreciate this about you, that you are like, uh, hey, this is not just. And so I'm not OK with it. And I think. One, there's no way that race does not play a part in how you've been treated in these spaces by any means. It 100% is a huge factor. But two, white power trippy pastors in these spaces hate people with a bent towards justice. They hate it. So my guess is in this moment, like at this at all of the churches, but really, truly, this last church you were at, you got in there and you weren't just a yes man. You weren't a pushover. 
You had ideas. You have vision. You're very, for anybody who doesn't know Kevin, Kevin is a very vibrant person. Like he brings a lot to the table. And I see you as like a problem solver a lot. Like you're like very creative. A lot of people just see me as a problem. (laughs) Well, they're dumb. (laughs) I'll just throw it out there. They're just dumb. Um, You have a lot to offer. And that's very, and you're young. So you are literally like every single thing that these dudes hate. You're a threat. You're a threat. And that's gross. And it's wrong. And it's not godly. But like you're very being there and having confidence and your your self-worth being in Jesus and not in that person. Immediately you were like, nope, this dude can't, this isn't going to fly. And that guy was going to do everything he could. Again, this is my opinion. That man was going to do everything he could to make you dependent on him for your value and your worth. And he did everything he could to wear you down. Yeah. Ugh, and I hate it. Well, and I'll, I'll admit <sighs> it, it worked pretty well. Um, my mental health was terrible, um, especially during the last year that I was there. Um, my self-worth was at an all-time low. I have a minor in music and viola performance. I grew up playing viola. And uh, I remember Christmas 2018, I played viola for the church. And it was just like a simple song. I can't even remember what song it was had like a piano accompaniment and it was just for like the Christmas Eve service. And I remember finishing playing and like, I saw the look on his face and he was so mad. Like not just like, you know, parent walks into the room and kid has thrown flour all over the face mad, but like furious, I'm going to, to lose my mind right now. Mad. And right after Christmas Eve service, like we're locking up the church and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get out of there. I'm trying to get to my family. My in-laws are in town. And the last thing he says to me um, before, before Christmas is you have no business playing any sort of instrument at all, especially viola. You're a terrible musician. And I hate that you lied to me about, having any sort of degree in music i can't believe you just picked this up this year i can tell i know music and he just walked out of the building and i'm standing there bawling my eyes out and it wasn't i didn't like start playing i didn't pick up my viola again till late 2020 so two years and again this is an instrument that i grew up playing that i love like to this day I didn't I, I I sold most of my music equipment like that January and February 2019. I I like I said I didn't pick up my viola till late 2020, maybe even 2021, and it wasn't until yeah, June of this year that I uh played viola again in front of the most recent church I was at. We had our 150th anniversary. And uh, one of the ladies who was putting together the music program for that said, hey, you are a great musician. I've heard you play piano before and you're a great musician. I want you to play your viola. Um, and like she convinced me to do this. But it, it was four years between one point and the other. And so I wasn't dependent on him for my worth, on this guy for my worth, but he definitely did 
make me doubt myself in so many different ways that I look back and I go, I like, I wish I could give him a piece of my mind today. <laughs> um, I wish I could like see him in person and show him I'm so much better than all the things you said that I was. Again, that's kind of what I was saying, you know, where I was saying before, you know, I, I have to trust that God's going to take care of him and um, I'm not going to go looking for him and, you know, try to set a meeting with him where I can get on Zoom, on Zoom and say, hi, you were wrong about me. That's not for me. That's, that's you know, for God to ultimately decide, right? Ugh. So, Kevin, I want to get into what happened next. So you, you've spent this time in this, you know, both in a SPC setting mm -hmm. and an American Baptist setting, which are two different, they're two different denominations. And mm -hmm. then ultimately, after this job, you move to Kansas and mm -hmm. you enter into the free Methodist, right? Into that space, into mm -hmm. that world. And, you know, you're, you're about to, for those for those we always spend time talking about, you're actually about to or in the process of launching a free Methodist church, your own free Methodist mm -hmm. church uh, in Kansas. But I'd love to know, you know, what led you into thinking about becoming part of a three, uh, free Methodist denomination? You could explain a little bit about what it is to people. Yeah. And, and then we'd love to hear about what you're doing next in, in Kansas uh, with your own church. Yeah, so uh, I joined like a, a recruitment group, I guess. I was like, I need to get out of here. Started to send my resume everywhere. And finally, a friend of mine connected me with a free Methodist church, uh, with the free Methodist church here in town. And I didn't know what free Methodism was. So I started looking it up. And first thing I find is that the original free Methodists, um, the denomination was founded in 1860. And each one of those pastors and churches were kicked out of the Methodist Episcopalian Church for being abolitionists and uh, uh, fighting against pew rentals. And so the original free Methodists, they, they said that all people should be free and the gospel should be free to all people. And so um, at the time, depending on how much you gave to the church, you had an assigned seat, basically, where you got to sit further up to the front or further closer to the back. And in a lot of churches, what was happening was even standing room was reserved for people that gave money. So the most impoverished people were left literally out of the church. These, these pastors, these, these Methodist pastors said, that's wrong. We're going to do away with that. Um, and we're also going to preach against slavery. And that, ultimately got them kicked out of the Methodist Episcopalian Church. And so I look this up, I share this with my wife, and we're like, whoa, this is a denomination that is like steeped in justice. Like that is what they're about. Um, and that spoke to us in a thousand different ways. It still speaks to us today. And I came to this church, and within a few months, I told uh, the head pastor there, said, hey, I like I know I've only been... I've only been here for a few months, but like I've wanted to be ordained for basically my entire time in ministry. I would like to be ordained in the Free Methodist Church. And so we started that process um, at the very beginning of 2020. Sometime in 2021, I began talking to uh, the, the district superintendent, kind of the person that's over 
all of the other free Methodist churches in Kansas and Nebraska, I started talking to him about how, hey, I've had this vision to start a church for years now. I've I've had this vision to not just lead a church, but really make a a community of people that that build people up and that build up churches. And I wanna like explore what that looks like within free Methodism. So him and I started having those discussions and it kind of just came to be uh, over the summer that, over summer 2022, that it became obvious that like God was pushing us, uh, me and my family, to start this church now. And that was that took a lot of prayer. That took a lot of like speaking to friends and family and and advisors and my therapist. He knows so much about like my whole thought process behind this, where like it just became obvious, like, hey, the the time is right and we we're in the right place to do this. We're in the right location to do this, like geographically, financially, whatever. And just we we have to do this now. And so uh we yeah, we just started taking steps at the beginning of the summer to uh, leave the church we were at. And as of July 31st, I'm, or as of August 1st, I guess, I'm officially like a full-time church planner. It's, we're a group of, of 20, 25 people, maybe. We've got several families, a bunch of kids, a few teenagers. And our, our entire mission is to show our city the radical love of Jesus. That is the mission of uh, Revive Church, is, is what it's called. And we, we want to be a church that is different than everything else in our area. We are still free Methodists, so we are still very much steeped in that like social justice, um, gospel justice way of thinking and theology. We are still Methodists, so we're Wesleyan, right? Which is, uh, it's the difference between where a lot of evangelical churches say you're you're such a sinner that God had to come down for you. We say uh, Wesleyanism says God loves you so much that despite you, the fact that you're a sinner, God came down for you. That's how much God loves us, right? And so it's it's a small change in vernacular, but like a huge change in theology. And so uh, and then this. What I'm going to say next is I know going to catch heat from people. We are a queer and trans-affirming church. We are striving to be a a multi-ethnic church. We strive to be a church where uh, we can lament and mourn and celebrate and and find joy and peace and still be angry and and be hurt. You know when when the time is right. God has emotions, and God gave us these emotions, and and uh, we find that in the gospel, Jesus goes through the full gamut of emotions, um, and so we try to honor that in everything that we do, and everything that we say, and teach, and preach. We're, it's September 1st, and uh, today I got to sign the lease on... Um, on, on another church here in town. We've officially got a place to like worship at. And so it's like things are moving. And and even when, when I doubt it and when I say, I don't think this is going to work anymore, God says, send someone our way or, or something happens where 
like I, I have to sit back and I go, no, this might actually work. Like, like God is moving here and God is here and we're doing something good. This is going to work. And it's just, it's, for me, it's really exciting to be a part of because we get to, we get to do church in a way that I don't think a lot of people are, are doing church. Uh, every, every ad you see out there for a new church plant is we're a multi-generational church. Like, yeah, you're a multi-generational church. You've got parents and you've got kids and, Literally, that's all I see in your ads is like 30, 20 and 30-somethings and then children. So yes, you're multi-generational. Um, but we want to be, uh, not because we want to be liberal or progressive or conservative or whatever, but we we simply want to show what for us feels like the radical love of Jesus to all of Lawrence. Now, that's beautiful. And so your church, it's called Revive, Revive Lawrence. Which we'll share if you have a website, we'll share that on the on the on the on the podcast yeah. in the notes. You also do some work with uh, you do some some work on your your own, right? Some consulting work with churches as well. Talk to us about what that looks like, if you can. Yeah, so it's coaching and consulting is what I call it, and that's exactly what I do. Uh, there's there's a lot of churches that think that they're gonna become multi ethnic just by hiring a person of color on staff. But the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of legwork that has to lead up to that. There's a lot of like theological work that has to be put in place before, say, just throwing a, a, a black woman up on stage to, to be the worship pastor or throwing, in my case, a Hispanic guy to lead the, the youth group. And so what I do is Churches will call me uh, occasionally. I'll I'll reach out to a to a church if it's like a friend or something. But usually it's a church who gets in touch with me and says, uh, "Hey, we we know there's some blind spots in our hiring or in our volunteering or what have you." Most recently, I spoke with a church in Washington, I think, that said we're like in a ninety percent black area and our entire church is white. We're doing something wrong, but we don't know what it is. And so I got to just like sit with with the staff and the pastors um, just over the phone and kind of start this relationship of of okay, what like what sort of things are we doing or saying that might make a person of color feel unwelcome when they walk through the doors? And so that looks I've I've been doing that for probably four or five years now. Uh, I started it when I was out in California and and started to see the need for it in churches around me. But I've been doing that for for a few years now. And it's always it's always kind of an interesting conversation because there's churches who who think they want uh the raw honest truth. And so I give them the raw honest truth and they're not ready for it and they just never return my call. But then there's also churches who uh who say they want that raw honest truth and really truly do want it and appreciate it and so i've gotten to see right no church is perfect but i've gotten to see some very cool transformations happen over the years of of churches that were once uh monocultural so to speak turn into multi-ethnic multicultural congregations where uh they're doing services in both spanish and english at the same time or they have ministries to refugees from non-european nations right right churches where it's not 
a savior mentality where this church says, we can fix your problem, but instead instead being able to see churches that say, hey, we want to show you Jesus in the way that you want to be shown Jesus. So for a Hispanic, for a, for a first-generation immigrant, that's going to look very different for, than for a fifth-generation immigrant. That's going to look very different for somebody whose family came over on the Mayflower. And ultimately, that's going to look differently even for, for people whose families came over on, were, were kidnapped and brought over on slave ships. So, so I get to, like I said, I get to coach and consult with churches and pastors and help them to simply see blind spots in their little portion of the kingdom, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's super critical. I think it's more needed, especially from spaces where, where diversity is definitely lacking. You know, just being able to to not be willing to say, I'm not going to center myself in this conversation. I need to learn here because I don't know as a person, you know, as a white person or as a white leader, and I need to bring in resources and people that can actually help because that really is what and when you say you want a multi-ethic church, you have to be willing, in my opinion, to do the work to make sure that all people are represented and feel welcomed in that church. Like everyone needs to be. It cannot be the gospel cannot be presented from a specific perspective or your perspective as a as a white leader or a person, a white person, because it's not gonna you're not gonna build a multi-ethic church. At least I don't think you will. I mean, that's great that you're doing that. What what yeah. if you what would you say? I mean, you you and your family have have gone through some horrific abuse and and racism and discrimination, um, and yet you know I'm sitting here talking with you and I've talked with you before and hearing your story and what you're doing today and and the church that you're launching, um, you know your your faith is resilient and growing. What what has been helpful for you uh, as a person? Um, during these seasons, not only for your mental and spiritual health. Well, yeah, for your mental and emotional health, but also your spiritual health. Honestly, the the biggest thing would probably be being able to, it's kind of a two-sided thing where on the one hand, being able to recognize that, hey, abuse did happen to me, right? I have been spiritually and emotionally abused, Thankfully, I've I've never been physically or sexually abused, though I know there's a lot of people who have been. But on one side, like I said, being able to recognize I have been abused and then taking it to that second step of saying, and it wasn't my fault. This wasn't on me. This wasn't on my theology. This wasn't on, on my relationship with Christ. This was on that person. This was on, on their mental state of being in their spiritual life. This isn't about me. Uh, this is about where they're at. I just happen to be the collateral damage of their messed up way of being. And like I said, just just recognizing those two things. And then a whole lot of therapy. Um, I there's there's a lot of people who would who would say that I, I share too much on social media. Um, or in sermons, or on on podcasts, even or on my blog or whatever. But there is power in in I think I said at the beginning of the episode of being able to just talk about it and being able to recognize like in depth what happened to me and what happened to my family, and you know recognizing that 
that's that's not okay. It's not my fault. That's that's not on me. And that's something that like I have to remind myself. My wife reminds me of it. There's there's times when I'm like, you know, maybe if I would have done this or that differently. And she's like, no, it's not on you. This is not your fault. That was not your fault. The way that things happened there is not your fault. It's on that person. Having having that support system, being able to talk about it, whether it's with a spouse or or friend or hopefully uh, a good therapist, and recognizing that hey, you're not alone, right? And that's that's why I agreed to come on here to begin with. Uh, was was in talking with Jana. I'm like, well, wait a second. There's there's a lot of people of color who I know because I've talked to personally who have spent half their lives thinking I was the only person that this could have happened to because there were other people of color at, at this church and that didn't happen to them. There were other people of color in this institution and it didn't happen to them. It happened to me and, and being able to talk to people one-on-one -on -one and say, no, it wasn't on you though. And, and, and that's what, that's part of what I appreciate so much about about bodies behind the bus and and the work that the two of you are doing. The I mean, four of you really, because <laughs> like your spouses are very much involved in all this whole process. Truth. <laughs> um, but the work being done through bodies behind the bus and you know just showing people that hey, you're like you're not alone in your story. And as unfortunate as that is, because it is widespread, there's also power in being able to say, well, wait a second there's a lot more of us than there are of them. There's a lot more people um, being put in, into these situations than there are people putting them into these situations. If we can recognize that and if we can turn that around and if we can say, uh, hey, that's not right. Jesus is so much more vast and infinite than any of this, then maybe possibly, hopefully, church really can experience revival in our little pockets and in, in the communities we're at you know maybe maybe we really can honestly believe jesus when when he prayed may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and 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 that's my hope that's you know that's that's how that's how i say it to my therapist who he's great he's a fantastic guy um I love him and like I said he probably knows way too much about my whole story but that's that's why he's my therapist. <laughs> You're paying him to know too much about your story. Exactly. <laughs> uh well Kevin it's a, a delight to know you. I feel like a richer human being just even in this last couple hours but from every interaction that I've gotten to have with you. And I'm so excited for your church plant and the work that you're doing. And I mean, I think a lot of people probably think, Jay, and I just hope that every single pastor just burns down. And that is not true. I don't, a lot of people do think that. And that's not true. We really desire good shepherds that are safe, that are not power hungry, that are just there to show people Jesus's love. And to be models of grace and models of transparency, modeling, laying down power and prestige and platform just to love the flock. And I see that in you and I want to affirm that in you. Thank you so much. It's really vulnerable and scary to come into. You're not Acts 29, you're former SBC. We got a lot of baggage over here in this little corner of the church 
sphere. I don't know how even to say that. We got a lot of baggage, though. And so for you to take your time to come and share your experience with us and for us to be able to sit and listen to it and learn from you has been just incredibly um, enriching. And I appreciate you. Kevin is an image bearer, worthy of care, love, support, and celebrating. His gifts were consumed by wolves, hungry to use him rather than cherish him. And Kevin's story is not an anomaly. In churches around the country, countless image bearers are being treated as less than by church leaders and congregations due to the color of their skin or their heritage. We need to hear stories like Kevin's. We need to bear witness to the journey of BIPOC Christians in America. What would it look like for us to collectively say, enough, we won't tolerate abuse of any kind, including racism in our churches. We are running towards goodness, beauty, and truth and a church that reflects all of God's people. A huge part of dismantling abusive systems is pulling out the rot in the roots. And for predominantly white evangelical spaces, this will mean grappling with racism and working to carve it out of our hearts and our faith communities. I hope that as we begin to crawl out of the rubble and see what the church will look like in the next generation, that voices like Kevin's are helping to lead the conversation. And when they do, I hope we all dare to listen. For Jay Coyle, I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. <laughs>